Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello, I'm Amanda Carpenter, and you're listening to Planet Pod. This week, we're talking about wilding, large and small, as I head up to Northumberland to look at West Chevington and talk to the prize-winning show garden for rewilding Britain at Chelsea. I'm really excited about our podcast today because I've come up to Northumberland, which as regular podcast listeners know, is one of my favourite places. And I've had the opportunity to come out to a brand new wilding site that's been bought by the Wildlife Trust of Northumberland. And I'm here with the Director of Conservation, Duncan Hutt. So Duncan, hello, and thanks so much for joining the podcast. Oh, it's nice to be here today. It's a great day as well to be out here. Well, it is a great day. It's dry and it's clear and the sun's out. And you can probably hear in the background a kind of low sort of rumbly, whirry noise. And that is a giant turbine, a wind turbine, which we're about, I don't know, a couple of hundred feet from. Um, So forgive the background noise, but that's what we've got. And the reason this site is particularly special is it's actually, well, it has a long history around energy, doesn't it, Duncan? I mean, it started its life as an open cast mine. Well, actually, going a little bit further back than that, even there was there were deep mines underneath here as well. So we have a we have a, a part of the site which wasn't open cast, just at the edge of it. There's a there's an old pit head, so where the where the uh, uh, pit wheel was on top of uh, and the shaft below. So that's where it first started, really, in that respect. And then we had pretty much all of it was then open cast uh, mined. Coal was taken out over over a, about four or five different phases. Uh, it's all been restored now. And then now, of course, we've got the wind turbines uh, and wind farm of nine turbines at the uh, eastern end of the site. Okay, so people would obviously then ask the question, why did the Wildlife Trust decide to buy a bit of ex-open cast mine that had a lot of wind turbines on it? How can that be a beneficial thing for wildlife? It's, I mean, it's probably an overused term, but blank canvas is, it was sprung to mind, I suppose. It, it, it isn't quite a blank canvas. There's actually quite a lot here. Um, already, there's quite a lot of wildlife around the site. Um, we've passed hares today, and, and we found dingy skipper on the site the other day as well. So great, great wildlife here already. But it is actually quite a blank canvas. We've got restored land, but it's, it's quite blank. It's blank to this arable land, medium, poor quality arable land, really. Um, some grassland in the middle, some new planted woodland, and, an, and a section of old woodland. So it gives us a great opportunity to start from scratch, really, and see what happens uh, in a process of wilding and turning it back from that or turning it from that into something that's uh, more natural processes can start uh, um, functioning again properly and become, you know, hopefully a, a driver for how this looks in the, in, out down in the future. So this is a huge site. It's 700 plus acres, which I think we were chatting earlier and we decided was bigger than the, the Olympic Park in London. So we've got to get a sense of scale. As you said, it's a mixed site. We've got some farms, we've got some arable, we've got some existing wood, which looks like Scots pine. You've got some lovely, we're standing amongst between two beautiful hedgerows, native hedgerows. So you've got a real variety here. Um, and you have a very long term vision for this site, don't you? This is part of your part of the bigger campaign to, to, to make Britain wilder, our 30 by 30 campaign that Rewild and Britain are supporting. But you have a really long term vision for this site. Tell us a little bit about how you're going to start and where you think you might get to, but you probably don't know, where you think you might get to and how long you think it's going to take. Yeah, it is a very much a long term process. We've, we've got to be patient. We've got to let, let natural processes function and let them do their job here so um we start we, we one of our first jobs on here is to is to slowly is to revert the arable land we've got arable land at the moment 
um, under standard arable cropping. And we want to turn that back into something wilder. And we're going to try that in two different methods. So we're going to try one actively, where we, we actively try and turn it back by selective cropping um, and management of that land and, and seeding in the end with some species-rich um, grassland. Um, that's an active pro approach. And, and another section of the site, we're going to, you know, once, once the, the last arable crop is taken out next year, um, we're going to we'll shut it up and, and let, it, let it do its own thing and see what happens. Uh, and we'll be monitoring those to see how that, how, that, how that works. But you're absolutely right, we don't know. We don't know what we're going to get. Uh, and that is, in some ways, the beauty of this. We, we, can, we can have a vision now, uh, and I keep on being asked, what, 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 do you, what do you envisage it looking like in 20 years? And I say, I don't really know. Um, but these hedges that we're standing next to, they're already sort of spreading out quite nicely, but they will begin to spread out further. Uh, they'll become wider and broader, scrubby lines of scrub linking parts of the site together, I, I would imagine. Um, Part of our management will be to introduce some large herbivores and cattle, essentially, I suppose, and maybe some other things too, but that's, that's our main aim. Um, and they will start sort of probably breaking their way through some of these hedges in places so the hedges will get gaps in it and there'll be some sort of patches of scrub across the landscape. Other bits, come, other bit, come, bits become quite dense and other bits become quite open. Um, and, and that's fine. Um, you know, we've got to also look at the, the um, conifer woodland that we've got on, on site um, we're not in a hurry there, but you know we lost an awful lot of that uh, hectares of that probably to um, to Storm Arwen. It's flattened. Um, what are we going to do? Well, nothing. We're going to leave it. You know, other stuff will start growing through it. So we'll get birch and alder and things like that starting to grow through, starting to create a, a, a native woodland out of that that uh, non-native uh, mix of species that's in there. And maybe we'll start actively changing some of that over time as well. Um, we've got ponds on the site. Well, they'll, they'll hope, you know, hopefully develop and become good for, for birds and for, for other wildlife. You know, maybe, maybe, we don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a thought for the future, but you know, we could, would beavers work on this site? Could they start creating wetland habitats on, on here that would be beneficial not just to them, but to other wildlife as well? Would that give us an opportunity to reintroduce water voles into this area, which have been missing for, for pretty decades now? Um, so there's all these opportunities we have. Some of it will be active, some of it will be active intervention, but a lot of it will be just stepping back and letting nature do its thing. Yeah, I was really struck because you use the term wilding, which is, um, and, and a lot of people talk about rewilding as if bringing back, but, but, but obviously what we're doing is we're just, in your words, we're just stepping back, we're letting go, we're stopping, and we're seeing what happens when, when, when the wild comes back. This is an ambitious project for you as an organisation. I mean, it was quite a costly purchase in the first place wasn't it how much did it cost and where did the money come from well we, we were lucky actually we, we it did cost a lot of money it was, was 1.9 million um to buy this bit of land um and there's there's this bit and there's actually a little separate section as well which we've got other plans for but uh, um so together they cost 1.9 million um we were lucky that we got the the uh, the funding came from uh, the reese foundation which was very generous in, in providing the entirety of the funds for that um but obviously, we subsequently have to go out and raise money for those other things to do because we still have to do work on the site. We have to, we have to get fences around the outside because even if we're going to graze it, we would like to make sure that any animals can't escape from the site. Um, so internally, we perhaps don't want those internal boundaries, but externally, we need that sorted. Um, we're going to have to do, um, we're going to have to work through this arable reversion on some of it, which will cost money as well, uh, and really importantly, we need to know what's happening. So we need to set up a monitoring program. Uh, and surveys on site so that we know what's happening and where it's taking us uh, and, and actually and map that into the future. So that costs money too. So all of those things cost us more money and so that's why we've, we've had public appeals and that sort of thing to get to raise money to, to help us to, to take that stuff forward. But uh, I think we're really 
enthusiastic and hopeful that it's, it's all going to come together. And, uh, you know, the worst case scenario is, you know, we can do the minimum and it is wilding. So we don't have to actually be overly active about it in the, in the process. But obviously, yeah, we'd like to do a bit more as well. And certainly to keep an eye on what's happening would be brilliant. So the value really um, is not just that you've got this fabulous site and you've got a, a long-term exper- experiment on your hands. You've also got opportunities to share and learn with other organisations that are wilding. You've got opportunities to share with other wildlife trusts. But, but presumably you've also got an opportunity for the rest of us to really understand what a wilder landscape might look like sitting alongside something which is very man-made you know we've got these very tall slightly noisy turbines so 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 how do we how do you think about the juxtaposition of the of the the wind turbines and the site and is there any threat to wildlife from having these these turbines right next to us when we first looked at the site i think there was there was a sort of slightly slightly nervous i suppose about the wind turbines we thought well that's a bit odd on a on a on a wilding site as we thought about it more that that story of the energy site you know right from from uh coal through to, to cleaner, greener wind energy. Um, we all use energy, so we still need it. So we have to accept that we, we have to generate it somewhere. Uh, and if it could be generated alongside wildlife, that's brilliant. There is a risk. There is always a risk from turbines, from you know collision with birds and bats and, and that sort of thing. Um, that's the, probably the main risk. Um, there's been a lot of monitoring and, and assessment on this site in the past, uh, and I think it's been it's been minimised. So there are certain constraints we have in near the turbines. Uh, to a certain distance away from turbines, we've got constraints about what we can do and how we can manage that land. Um, but we can work, I think, hopefully closely to the to the wind farm company and uh, and work with them to achieve what we're trying to achieve. And they've been very positive so far about what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's a very positive message for them as well, isn't it? And and it was interesting you said about bats because as we were walking past, you said that sometimes they. They, they turn off, but also they only come on at certain speeds, certain wind speeds, in order to stop bat damage. That's right. So under a certain speed, and I don't know what it is, the exact speed, but under a certain wind speed, uh, they won't switch on here, um, whereas in maybe other turbines elsewhere would, would come on earlier um, because, you know, at that point, the bats are still able to fly quite happily around and there is a higher risk of bat, bat collisions. So, so, yeah, there's some adaptation here um, of, of, of what would be what they'd normally do in order to, to protect wildlife on site so you know that's that's good for us you know we can't reduce or remove any risk there will be some risk there is some risk of, of collisions from bats and birds of course there is um but you know if we didn't none of us use energy none of us use electricity that would be fine we wouldn't need them would we but uh, but we all do so we need to get it somewhere and in terms of the types of species mix, I mean, you know, there's obviously, there are species here already, we've been walking around, we've heard skylarks, you know, you, you've mentioned that you've seen the old marsh harrier. What sort of species are you, are you hoping you might bring in or what you might attract? And, and obviously you've mentioned water voles and, 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 and beavers, so there's going to be some bringing in of non, you know, currently non-native species. But what about native species? I mean, what kind of things might be appearing in the next five or ten years? Oh, it's an interesting question because actually there will be winners and losers in what we're doing. And there'll be some species that we, we start seeing dwindling in number. And they're bound to be because the habitat will no longer be quite right for them. Um, and there'll be other things that will benefit really, really strongly from what we're doing. Um, and I think the interest from our point of view is to see, see what that is. Um, the grassland on the hill, for example, you know, last year was actually covered with um, small skippers. Uh, there must have been thousands on one day we walked around on there. Um, they're doing really well on that. Now, Maybe. A skipper's what? Skipper butterfly, sorry. Um, and um, uh, and they were, and, and as, we, as we perhaps get grazing on there or some of it scrubs up, maybe they'll dwindle a little bit in number, um, certainly from the high levels they're at the moment. 
but I'm sure other things will come in and, and I don't really know what's going to come in and I, I'm not overly concerned about what comes in in some ways. It sounds ridiculous, but uh, um, that we'll see. I think we'll see. And we've already got you know, hair and, and uh, you know, large numbers of hair around on site, for example. Um, that, will they do better or will they do worse from, from what we're doing? Possibly they, they quite like some of this arable edge habitat. Well, they may, they may actually do slightly worse from it all. Um, but some of the bird species, I think, we'll see a much broader mix of those. Um, and I think hopefully we can manage that grassland areas with grazing that will, will still benefit things like the lapwing and which are, which are currently nesting on site and oyster catchers and things like that that, are, that we've seen around too. Um, so yeah, it's a difficult question because I actually don't know. Uh, and I'll be really fascinated. We're fascinated. That's part of why we're doing so much survey and want to see what's going on. Let's see what happens. How, how does a project like this, a wilding project like this, fit in with a, the, the bigger landscape up here in the northeast? Because, you know, there's, this, there's a there's an amazing coast, beautiful coast, so very popular with tourists. There's Durridge Bay, just 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 over there, a few, yes. you know, a few hundred yards away. Um, and obviously, you know, Spring Watch are coming up, so there's things to see. There's a lot of um, coastal birds and migratory birds. How do you fit in to that wider landscape, and how does it also fit into your wider remit as a, as a wildlife trust? We've, as Northumberland Wildlife Trust, we've already got a nice string of reserves across, along, out, along Durridge Bay, from Hawksley at the north, East Chempton, which is another big site actually, another another sort of 500 acre site or thereabouts, um, through to um, smaller sites like Druidge Pools and Crestwood Pond. Uh, so we already have this string of reserves along the area. They're all very coastal, as you say. You know, it's, it's all about the coastal and coastal birds and the and the and sort of um, ponds, the freshwater ponds that are great for the, the birds to come into. Um, that's really what it's, the remit's been. And I think we've already ha- always had a little bit of an aspiration to to have get something a little bit further back. Um, because it gives that diversity of habitat, but also um, it, it also gives us some continuity. That, that this, the erosion on the coast is, is, is quite rapid. You know, it's sort of sometimes a metre a year coming back in in some places. Um, so those are always going to they're going to be at risk in the next in not too distant future from from coastal inundation and, and that sort of thing. Hopefully, they can help with that sort of you know, management of the coast in some ways. But uh, so getting stepping back and stepping back and allowing nature and allowing wildlife to be able to take that step away from that coastal strip and, and have somewhere else to come is, 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 is one of our main, one of, was one of our main drivers actually about concentrating our efforts on Druidge Bay. Um, so, so yes, I think those, those are sort of really important for us and one of the whole con- concept and context of things, but also linking those together. So we, we haven't, all of those sites are separate, but they're not very far apart. They are short enough distance for many things to leap that those those gaps and boundaries. Um, so you know, even some of the smaller insects, plants are more tricky, obviously, but to try and move them around. But uh, you know, things that fly and things that move will will be able to jump those boundaries and gaps between those sites. So it's all part of that piecing that together. Um, we're never going to. We don't want. We have no aspirations to own all of Druidge Bay. Um, that would be far, far too much. You know, there's, there's, and uh, but you know, we we can provide these little sort of points and some of these are big i mean this is, we're not providing little little tiny um jumping uh, points across the bay we're actually providing quite big areas here you know 700 acres is is, is in the sort of lowland context is, is quite a large site it's about the biggest isn't it in terms of a lowland wilding project it's i, I think so i think certainly it's certainly up there in there in that scale of things yes i mean some of the upland ones are, are much bigger but uh, um but yeah and we we've involved in some of those ourselves but you know, from a lowland point of view, you get more diversity and more mix of things, I suppose, in the, in the lowland site. And, and yeah, 700 acres is a big area to play with. Yeah, and wild, wildlife corridors are really important, aren't they? We know about the fact that you know species will travel quite a distance, <clears throat> and if we let them travel across, you know, those corridors and link up and go 
you know, sort of north to south across the UK. I mean, we are going to be much richer in terms of our biodiversity as a, as a country, aren't we? And that's why this is so incredibly important. Um, and I think that people sometimes forget that, that every little bit that someone does as an individual to sort of support some wildlife in their area, whether it's a local park or their street or their garden, is helping to create some of those corridors from species to move from place to place. Absolutely. It's, you know, we are very depleted from a biodiversity point of view in this country. We've lost an awful lot of stuff already um, and we've got to try and protect what we've got, but also help those things that perhaps we are reintroducing and bringing back that help them thrive and to, to add to our biodiversity, add to our diversity of life in the, in the, in the uh, countryside. So, and you're right, it's dark, you, know, you can look at a site like this and say, well, we've got 700 acres here and we've got 500 acres there and, and all, that's all great, but what then is the point of the tiny sites? Um, well, they are still a point because they, they are exactly that. They're the linkage between all of those, those bigger areas as well. And hopefully areas like this that we're standing on at the moment, they can, they can spill out. Hopefully the wildlife here can spill out into the wider countryside. And I'm sure there'll be changes as well in, in management in this area. I mean, there already is. We're already seeing quite a lot of tree planting, um, quite a lot of land being taken um, by others, not nothing to do with the Wildlife Trust, other people, private individuals taking on land, putting trees in, planting areas up. So the land use is changing quite quite dramatically in, in some of this area. So hopefully what we do here will help and hopefully what they do there, it'll all spill out together and, and, and provide a, a more diverse and more interesting um, landscape for wildlife. Yeah, and that's really important, isn't it? Because we need that mix of biodiverse of, of, of biodiversity. We also need that mix of landscape. And lots of the, the, the pines you mentioned are home to a much-loved species already, aren't they? So, so your point about not taking everything out and just taking time to take stock is incredibly important. Uh, that's right. I mean, we, yeah, the pines are, are, are... We have red squirrels in the, in the, in the pine woodland here. Um, I don't think it's a huge population in there, but they're certainly in there. They're on, on, on our other sites on Druidge Bay at, at East Cheverton and, and Hawksley as well. We have, so they're a really important species, really iconic species. And we as a wildlife trust have spent probably millions of pounds over the last, last uh, 20 years or so on protection of red squirrels. So it's a really important species to have. But it is just one species in the whole mix of things as well. So we, 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 what we definitely don't want to be doing is trying to manage any site, particularly of this scale, for a single species. It's about trying to think of, the, think of the whole and let natural processes do their thing. Um, and so, yes, we'll do what we can with the red squirrels, and I'm sure they'll do okay. They, they, they're fine in, in broadleaf woodlands so long as we can keep the greys out. Um, they don't just need pine. So, uh, um, and we're not intending to get rid of all the pine either. So, yeah, I think, you know, we, so we will try and manage a little bit for some of this stuff. But, but overall, it's about taking that step back and not trying to be too precious about one thing or another thing and letting that, that take its own course. And in terms of this being an ex, you know, open cast coal mine, have there, um, has that done any damage to the quality of the soil? I mean, you know, there are arable crops, but you said that it's not particularly good cropping soil for, for, for arable crops. Yeah, I mean, the trouble with any, there's no structure, there's no, there's no, there's no sort of profile through the soil. I mean, what, you know, one of the things when you're talking about arable reversion and turkey, turning it into sort of more species-rich grassland would be to do deep ploughing and to plough plow down deep and, and turn it all over and allow you to get a, a meadow mix on top of that. We can't do that because what's down there is there isn't a profile of topsoil, subsoil and down below it. It's all been put back into a big hole. Um, it's been put back carefully. I won't, I'm not, <laughs> and, and, and has been layered to a point. But it is new soil and it's new ground. So, yeah, those those bits of land um, could become, you know, they're not good arable land because the soil structure is not there. They they probably need high inputs. There is a there is a problem with some of this land where you get heavy rainfall. Um, it washes a lot of silt 
out and so you find the ditches that are across, across here are just full of very murky water when it's been raining hard. Um, so all of this is it's washing soils off to start, so we're losing soils, um, we've got not great structure anyway, um, but actually from our point of view that's not a bad thing because it gives us a, a, a starting point which isn't overly nutrient rich, which we can start doing what we want for, from a wildlife perspective without quite that level of intervention that you might need to do on a much richer, richer soil type. And we've talked about it being a long-term plan. I mean, what do you think the next two or three years look like? Because I know you can't forecast 20 years ahead, but you've talked about, you've talked about your cattle and, um, and not having fences because the cattle's going to have, um, you know, these kind of electronic collars, aren't they? So they're going to have to sort of, you know, fence, fenceless cattle, which I know has been tried elsewhere in the UK. So what are the sort of immediate plans for the next two or three years, do you think? Well, the immediate plans are to get the infrastructure in place that we can start doing that. So external fencing um, to get, make sure we, we actually define our boundaries properly. Um, we've got a little bit of work to do on, on some of the things to do with access as well. At the moment there's no access on site um, and that is, um, that's because the footpaths haven't been reinstated properly after the open cast. So we're working with the county council on the reinstatement of footpaths and routes. So there will be some public access. We want to balance that however. We want to make sure that fits with protecting wildlife as well because you know, having too much public access uncontrolled public access will probably mean it's, it's not as good for wildlife as it could be. So carefully managed public access is certainly something we'll be doing. Um, we'll, be, um, we'll, we'll be looking at the woodland um, and we'll be planting a little bit of, judiciously planting a little bit of trees to, to, to link patches of habitat and to perhaps create habitat that's going to be better for certain species in the future. So perhaps getting some willow in around the water areas, for example. You know, if we are in a position to do beavers in the future, they'll need food so they get things ready if they don't come they don't come in the end but that's that's fine um so there'll be a little bit of that sort of stuff but the majority of our work actually over the next couple of years is going to be in understanding what we've got and monitoring and and getting baselines in here and and continue with those surveys to find out a bit more about what's happening so that we can be re really sure that what the management we do is 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 working in the right direction I suppose the other thing is just about changing the arable. So one section of arable comes out um, soon, uh, in one more cropping year on it, um, and that will just be, so the section we're standing in at the moment actually will be left to do its own thing, and the other area of arable at the far end of the site will be, will be done by a, a depletive cropping method. Uh, and so we'll, that's another thing we have to work out, out, get that right. And so there'll be quite a bit of intervention, I suppose, in that in the short term as well. So it'd be fascinating to come back in a couple of years' time and just see how much has changed without you doing huge amounts. Yeah. Um, and, and, and actually just to see what, you know, what, what the lie of the land is. And it would just be, you know, because it's a, a work in, in progress, this, isn't it? Oh, it, it, it's very much a work in progress. We, 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 um, we, we've only owned it for five months. Um, and, you know, we had a, not quite a year. And in, fact, in fact, the first visit that I had to this site to even look at it was just over a year ago. Um, so it's, it's very new in, in every different way. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think we're all excited to see what does change and what, what we start spotting. I mean, some of it's already here maybe, but you know, what we start finding out about the site, how things change, how, how the hedges develop, uh, how, whether they, how much they start spreading out into the fields, for example. Um, all of that sort of stuff, you know, what birds start appearing um, on, on, around the pond and in the pond. Uh, all of that, I think, is, is really exciting to see. We're all really excited just to, to be able to see it through that process. And I think, you know, it's, it's a team effort. We've got, we've got staff who are very much dedicated to the site, but there are, it's, it's, a, it's a team effort across the Trust. You know, we're all, in, we're all involved in this, and I think everybody in the Trust is, is excited by what we're trying to do here. 
but we've got to remember we've also got other stuff to do elsewhere because we've we've got other sites doing equally interesting things around the county so you know there's plenty on our plate to do at the moment absolutely but it is a terribly exciting place and, and thank you so much for sharing it and your enthusiasm and, and is, is totally infectious and we've been lucky enough to have a walk around and we'll post some of the photos of some things that we've seen Duncan's been great to talk to you. We'd love to come back, you know, in a couple of years' time, see how you're getting on, um, find out what's, what's come, what hasn't come. Um, and, and, and thank you for bringing in the beaver, because that's a beautiful link to our, our second guest in the podcast, who's going to be talking about the uh, winning garden at Chelsea. So you could not get a more different location from here in West Chevington, right up in the northeast, to, to, to the manicured grounds of, of, of Chelsea. So uh, thank you, and thanks for sharing the site with us. Thank you very much, and you're welcome to come back whenever you like. You can bank on it. Thanks a lot. And now for rewilding of a completely different kind. I'm delighted to be joined by um, Alistair Driver, who's a director of Rewilding Britain. And Alistair, also, I mean, a medal winner, really, if I'm honest, aren't I? Because you're the, you were the technical um, expertise, or certainly a technical advisor, behind the best-in-show winning Rewilding Britain Garden at Chelsea last week. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I don't think I can claim much of the credit. I was one of several technical advisors, but I was, uh, yes, I did have a, a small input and uh, just amazing to be part of that that team. Um, I mean, the real credit goes to the designers, uh, Adam Hunt and Lulu Urquhart, who just did an unbelievable job of replicating nature. I mean, I'm a really nerdy ecologist and I would have seen the finest little error detail error and i couldn't i mean i you know i was resorted to sort of oh you need to weave the sticks in the dam a little bit more because that's what beavers would do and that was about it that's all i could come up with when i went to inspect the site uh, a week before it was finished and then they sent me photos i was in denmark speaking at the danish people's nature festival in denmark where actually they had loads of wildlife gardening people as well and um and i got these photos and I couldn't believe it. It was absolutely stunning. And then when I visited the site, uh, it, I realised it was faultless. You know, they had absolutely nailed it. Mm. It was an incredible space, wasn't it? It was an incredible garden. And and I suppose we should row back a little bit because it's not your normal Chelsea garden. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to, to go and to see it. And um, most of Chelsea is pretty primped and preened and perfect and pristine. And, the, you know, we, we mm. the flowers are absolutely the right shape and colour. And um, and this was a little bit of wildlife and nature and, if you like, kind of ordered chaos on that corner plot. Yeah. So why Chelsea to start with? Why why take Rewilding Britain to Chelsea? Well, we wanted to raise the profile of rewilding generally, anyway, with the general public. We, we've had a lot of success in rewild, rewilding Britain in the last couple of years in, in terms of mainstreaming rewilding as an option for uh, f- future management of the countryside, an option, not the only thing, not the silver bullet, just one of many options. Uh, but it was important that we also got the message across to the wider public. It was also important that we got the message across about the value of beavers. So that, that you know, there was a beaver emphasis, obviously, with a, a lodge and a dam and a pool. Uh, and habitats associated with beavers. Uh, we, you know, we're keen to promote that. And also, we wanted to get the message across that everyone can do a little bit at home in their own garden that, that contributes overall to the rewilding spectrum. Obviously, it's tiny and 
scale matters. I always say size matters when it comes to rewilding. The, you know, the bigger, the better, the more likely you are to be able to move further up the spectrum. But we can all do a little bit at home. And if, lot, if thousands of people are doing little bits at home, you know, it's a bit like energy saving and recycling. You know, we all do a little bit. It'll move it in the right direction. Yeah. And it couldn't have been on a more different scale from, from West Chevington and Duncan's <laughs> huge plot, 700 plus acres. But, yeah. but I guess what was really interesting about it is it was incredibly packed. That I mean, I don't know physically how much space you had, but there wasn't there wasn't a, a centimetre wasted. Something was happening all across the site. But unlike most of the gardens, you know, either side of it, in front of it, 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 it felt like a very... Um, like ordered chaos. It felt like lots of kind of things that had just appeared as if they would have done had we done nothing for them. And, you know, I know you had the, the, the Nord beaver stick. So so tell me about that first bit of design. I mean, you work with the designers. What is it where you were trying to create in that very small space? Because they you talked about the dam and and the water and but but the plants at the front were pretty important as well, weren't they? Yeah. So we putting the beaver features to one side, uh, what we wanted to do is replicate a range of habitat types, sort of typical of Southwest England. We were, we were kind of focusing on that. Um, uh, and so, you know, there are various uh, wetland areas. Uh, we even had aquatic plants, you know, we had water crover in the stream, which was, which was great and looking very healthy. And, um, and then a range of other habitats through to, you know, things on plants on the dry stone wall. It was a whole mosaic of habitats we were trying to replicate in a very small area. And I guess you'd need to be, you know, a, a botanist to, 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 to spot the difference in those habitats. But there were deliberate zonations with soil water levels manipulated accordingly. Uh, and I thought it worked really well. You know, it, it um, I mean, obviously it was mainly wetland and sort of floodplain grass and floodplain fen kind of habitat in many places. But but um, yeah, they crammed in an incredible number of species. <laughs> there was there was sound as well, wasn't there? There were there were there were noises. I mean, and I think you were an advisor on some of getting some yeah, of those, was, those noises right. That's right, and really keen to um, to to get that soundscape to reflect not only what we the best of what we currently got. So things like, for example, uh, cuckoo and 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 herons etc but also uh, and also beaver tail we had we indulged ourselves with a beaver tail slap which is what they do when when they're alarmed um but also um you know species for the future like white stalks bill clacking etc you know we, we we want you know we wanted a bit of bit of the present and a bit of what could be yeah I think it's the beavers that won it, wasn't it, really? But but it was it was slightly controversial in that it, it was so different from Chelsea. And, and I was standing there looking at it, you know, saying how wonderful it was. And, and um, you know, a, a nameless gardener behind me said, well, it just looks like it needs a good weed to me. You know, I think it was a very out of step with the normal Chelsea garden. So why do you think it was, why do you think it won best in show? What do you think it was that, and does this reflect a change in the way that the RHS and other gardening organisations are thinking about rewilding? Yeah, interesting. Well, first of all, I had to put my cards on the table and say, I've never been to Chelsea before. I haven't really watched it on television very much. I didn't know much about it. I am a keen gardener, um, but, but it, you know, it's not something I ever thought I'd be at. Um, but I hosted the garden on the Thursday evening and all day on the Friday. And I spoke to well over 100 people at length. I don't just mean saying hello. I mean having a proper chat about what they thought. 
And every single one of them was effusive about the garden. They loved it. Thousands of people came to, I mean, probably, I don't know, over 100,000 people probably looked at that garden during the week, and probably way more than that. I don't know. It was rammed three or four deep all the time around the edges. And um, the, what the, and, and really to answer your question, I, I'm, I'm going to repeat the sort of things people said to me. So, first of all, they said, it looks beautiful. It is, it is, it is naturally beautiful. And although people might say, well, there's no flowers in there, maybe the sceptics would say that. Of course, it was teeming with flowers, and it was teeming actually with insects on those flowers when the sun came out. The bees loved the comfrey and the valerian, for example. So, so that was great. And I saw holly blue butterfly hanging around on the valerian a lot. There was a black-tailed skimmer, female black-tailed skimmer, dragonfly came by visiting quite often. So it was attracting insects into it. Um, that added to the, I think that helped added to the beauty actually, because it looked it then was even more natural. So beauty was one thing. The second thing is uh, that a lot of people now are thinking about having a little wild corner of their garden. Uh, they might have done it yet, but they're thinking about it. Uh, and a lot of people, of course, are talking about no mow may, you know, so they're stopping mowing certain bits. But what they saw there clearly inspired a lot of people because they would think, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm gonna, how do I do that? How do I get, what should I do with these species? You know, and um, how do you, you know, how did you get the, the stream to be like that? And, and so there's loads of people wanted to hear more about the detail and they were definitely thinking about it. And then the third key thing is that people said it was tranquil. It was relaxing. They felt really at ease looking at it. And, and, and that was an overriding thing that came across a lot. A lot of people use the word tranquility. And that is absolutely right, because healthy, functioning nature is definitely extremely important for, for health and well-being. And this is an area we need to you know, explore more and more uh, in the coming years. You know, what is the connection? But there's no doubt that people felt, they just felt better for looking at it. Mm-hmm. It was incredibly beautiful in 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 its way, and it was also, you're right. It did have a kind of stillness and a tranquility to it, despite the you know the busyness of the insects. Um, it's interesting to hear you say that because actually part of the rewilding Britain campaign is the thirty by thirty, which is the idea that we'll have thirty percent of the of the UK's land and sea, and some of its coastal, isn't it, um, back to a wild state by twenty thirty. So having that example of something that you can do in a very small space is really helpful for gardeners, isn't it? And those people who care about uh, about these things or want to have a try, because we need to link up lots of little spaces as well as the the big spaces of you know West Chevington and elsewhere. Yeah. So yeah. so there's a how much do you think? How much do you think it's done for the, the rewilding Britain cause? I mean, obviously, you know, there's 100,000 people who came and chatted to you, not all personally. Um, but what do you think it's done for the overall understanding and awareness of rewilding? Well, it, I'm certain it will have helped elevate awareness of the word and the fact that it means trying to reestablish, you know, healthy functioning habitats. Uh, it, time will tell whether it makes a difference to behaviours and practice. But we, we've, you know, we at Rewilding Britain, we've come through, you know, quite a change in the last few years. I started five and a half years ago and we were, the organisation was just getting going. And initially in the early, uh, in the early, probably first two or three years, you know, there was quite a lot of angst around the word. Now there still is, there still is a bit, 
and people still protest about it. But there's no doubt that the word is here to stay. We have a clear definition and set of principles that underpin it, and you can easily find those on our Rewilding Britain website. Uh, and they are very much mirror international principles. The IUCN, International Union for the Conservation of Nature, have got a clear definition and principles. So we, we, we want more and more people to understand those principles. But it's also important that we help society to be more comfortable with using the word so, so that they're not, they're not immediately shutting off and, and turning away from it. And once, once they engage with it, then we can start to uh, encourage people to become more familiar with those principles. So it's, a, it's very much a stepping stone, but it's a very big stepping stone in the right direction. And we, you know, we're, we're having exactly the same, we're going through the same process with government. You know, we, you know, government are now considering a position on rewilding. That's great. It's appearing now. That word is now appearing in future farming policy documents. Again, that's through our influence. Um, so we're, we're just trying to move or help all sectors of society, A, become more familiar with it and, and less frightened of it. But also for those who want to engage, obviously encourage them to actually actively do so. Mm. And a best in shirt, Chelsea is going to help that, isn't it? Has to, has to help that in terms of your profile and make you yeah. obviously media star. Can I just ask you about the word? Because it's interesting because speaking to Duncan, he talked about wilding quite a lot rather than rewilding. Um, and I've always referred to it as rewilding and, and known your work and the work at NEP and other places. So is there a distinction? I mean, is it just different bits of the same spectrum or has no, it got a, a slightly different approach? No, it's just, just uh, semantics. Um, we, we, you know, re, rewilding, I always describe it as sometimes people think when you're talking about rewilding, you're making, you're turning it back to a thousand years ago or the ice age or something. No, you, the way to think of rewilding is making, making it wild again. It was wild once. And now we're rewilding it, making it wild again. But we're doing so in a way that's fit for the future. You know, it's fit mm -hmm. for future climates, fit for future population, it's fit for future priorities of mankind. And and so, so we have to we have to stick with the word now. It's here to stay. You know, uh, there are plenty of organisations coming up with all sorts of alternative ways of saying it without saying the word rewilding. And some of them are really boring. I can tell you, I've written. <laughs> I've, I've actually kept a glossary and one day it will be published of all the alternative ways that people have tried to describe what is in effect rewilding because it ticks the boxes on the principles. So wilding is just, an, it's the same thing. It's up to organisations how they describe it. Don't forget Izzy, Isabella Tree wrote the book about NEP and she called it wilding because probably partly because they felt it, she felt at the time that rewilding mm. might not be quite the quite the right, right way to do it. But I, you know, it's it's the same thing. Uh, we mustn't get hung up on the word. It's the actions yeah. that are important, isn't Absolutely. it? Really, and making sure that we do do those right things in the right way. Um, and you know, I have to say, it's a shame the beavers didn't make it. Were you tempted to smuggle one in and just pop him in that pond at the top? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, we did ask the question, but of course, you know, it's not feasible without a bloody great fence around it. So, uh, so yeah, we were only joking about it, really. But um, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, to be honest, as you probably know, if you go to a beaver enclosure or a beaver watching site in the daytime, which is when, you know, when when uh, Chelsea was open, you, you were not like you see a beaver anyway, because they're 
largely nocturnal and coming out mm. at dusk and you know quite you know keeping well away from people in the middle <laughs> of their lodge so actually the, you could have pretended there was one there it wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't have been any different a beaver on the loose at Chelsea would have certainly made inroads into some of those gardens <laughs> oh Alistair it's been lovely to chat to you thanks so much and it's so exciting I think that this can only help and the more we talk about this and the more we encourage people to just as you say take those small steps in their domestic gardens and also if they have more land to be to be braver and to perhaps do something across you know acres if they've got them um it's just an absolutely essential cause and it's an essential um activity so so huge congratulations to you and to the team um and obviously we'll be you know sharing the photos that that i took but i was lucky enough to be there and i'm sure you've got some too so yeah and and it it, yeah may not be your natural habitat but i think you adapted to chelsea very well if i may say (laughs) thank you very much thank you for inviting me thanks for coming along it's been great to see you take care cheers You've been listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. My thanks go to Beth Palmer, our producer, and Jim Haywood, our executive producer, and to you for listening. Please keep in touch and tell us all about your rewilding stories. Take care and goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media.